0: Hey, weirdos, a little something different from us here.
1: We are not known for mixing it up too much here on the pod. Weird religion is a passion project, you might say. So we are uncompromising. We do Quality control.
0: Because, you know, we're artists.
1: (laughs) Yes, we are. But today we're doing something that is referred to in the biz as an episode swap.
0: That is to say, we're going to run an episode or two on our feed from another pod that we think you might like called Saved by the City from Religion News Service. And they are going to run a couple of ours to their audience.
1: So if you like us and believe in our thing here, do us a favor and listen to this and seriously check them out. And they know what they're doing over there. And They're doing the same thing for us.
0: Yeah, the Saved by the City hosts, Roxy and Caitlin, grew up immersed in white evangelical America, and now they're talking about God, grit, and Gotham City, baby. That's New York City, okay. (laughs) When they moved to New York City as adults, they were warned about the secular dangers of the big city life, and their podcast captures what happens when this collision occurs in real life.
1: We love their show, and we hope you do too. Enjoy. Enjoy. Roxy, New York is always boo this time of year. Oh, no. Are we doing this again? Don't act like you didn't enjoy last year's Halloween episode.
0: It's always a blast to chat with Tyler Huckaboo. <laughs> I mean, Tyler Huckabee.
1: Well, whatever. from now until the end of October, I would like to be called Caitlin Boo-Tee. And I will call you Roxy Stone. Stone, cold, dead corpse.
0: Yeah. Let's keep workshopping that. From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two single Christian women ghost-busted into the spooky spirit of the season. I'm Roxy Stone. And I'm Caitlin Boo-T.
1: And now I realize I'm saying booty. You didn't realize that before. <laughs> no. <laughs> nope. I just saw it spelled out, and in my mind it was Boo-T. But now that I'm saying it, it's like Caitlin boo <laughs> I just don't even know. Pivoting. Okay, don't call me Caitlin Booty. I am already calling you that in the head forever. What is the most fun you have ever had being scared?
0: Ooh. I can think of a few things, but, you know, one, this was so silly. You know, when you're like a 12-year-old girl and you're already kind of like a giggle monster. Mm-hmm. I remember inviting all my other 12-year-old girlfriends over to my house and we were going to do like a scary movie night. And, you know, we had like all the blankets and the pillows in front of the TV and the popcorn and probably all kinds of sugary, delightful treats and probably like Mountain Dew or something. And (laughs) we watched Arachnophobia, which (laughs) is not really very scary, but... (laughs) We made it so scary by just freaking ourselves out, you know, as only twelve-year-old girls can do.
1: <laughs> I
0: can imagine this
1: right now, like
0: feeling something on crawling yes, on your skin, yes. or and like squealing and running upstairs and then running back downstairs, and yeah. So I I don't know if we were really scared, but we had a really good time pretending to be really scared.
1: <laughs> so I remember seeing both. Carrie and The Shining on TBS. Mm. Like, it was airing. They'd probably cut out the more sexual parts of those movies. Mm -hmm. But I remember, like, sitting in my grandma's basement, flipping to the channel where it was showing, and being at once terrified and also Mm -hmm. so intrigued. Like,
0: I couldn't, I could not look away. Those are both, like, legitimately frightening movies.
1: Yes. They are both now among my favorite movies. Mm-hmm. I think because of how effective they are. Yeah. But I just remember both being horrified and probably having bad dreams later that night and also kind of enjoying the like the thrill of what's gonna happen next.
0: Yeah. What is it about that? Like, what is it about those movies that kind of give us this little thrill? Like, why do we even like watching them? I think it's the adrenaline rush. Mm. I think it's it's kind of
1: like riding a roller coaster. Where, like, in the first huge drop, you're, like, for five seconds legitimately terrified. Mm -hmm. And then somehow the scream turns into laughter. Not that I'm watching a lot of horror movies laughing, (laughs) but (laughs) there is this really unique combination of fun-scary versus, like, scary-scary. And I recognize that not everybody actually enjoys horror movies. Like, I think
0: there's probably a particular… It's a big market, though. Huge yeah. So
1: in this episode on All Hallows Eve, we're going to play mm-hmm. armchair psychologists for a bit and dig into why, despite all the warnings about scary and spooky things growing up, we continue to be drawn to scary stories and even the experience of being scared straight. <laughs> I found this research from Margie Kerr really interesting. She is, get this, the staff sociologist at Scare House, a haunted house in Pittsburgh.
0: Okay, wait, wait, can we just pause for a second? Haunted houses have staff sociologists?
1: It sounds like a cool job. I don't know what you major in.
0: The world runs on all kinds, I guess. Have you ever been to a a haunted house? I have. And I actually found it terrifying and fun. And exactly the thing that it's supposed to do.
1: So there are reasons. Oh, great. Yes. <laughs> According to Margie Kerr. She would know. She talks about the flight or fight response when we are in a place where we feel threatened. You know, we have this rush of adrenaline. Our body goes into gear to either run away or fight back. And in the midst of that, we have this huge rush of dopamine. So mm-hmm. even as we're like. Our bodies are tensing up. We're screaming. It feels good. Like, our right. brain likes the feeling. There's a sense of having confidence when it's over.
0: Oh.
1: Which I totally relate to this sense of, like, I just did this hard, scary thing. And now that it's over, there's this huge rush. Like, I survived. Yeah. I survived. Scarehouse 2021. <laughs> <laughs> she also talks about our fascination with things and beings that defy the laws of nature. And this is actually Mm -hmm. true across time and cultures. Like, every cultural tradition has some vision of, like, a monster or a being who is evil. Mm -hmm. And we are fascinated by them in part because they are unlike us. They, like, speak to this—really, they speak to this— They speak to our obsession over death.
0: Mm, But I also think there's, like, an aspect of fear of our own corruption or our own sin nature, if we want to get religious about it. Like, across time and culture, there have been these creatures, these devils um, Mm -hmm. that get created. I think it's in part, like, we need something to hang the horrors that we've seen humans do on and say, the devil made me do it, you know, or... Mm -hmm. The reason that people kill each other and there's wars, or they're all of we do these horrible things to each other, is is like has a reason, you know, has a place that it's born Mm -hmm. out of that we can other, and that we Mm -hmm. can maybe create a picture around, and that makes us feel a little, a little distant from it, or like a little separate from it.
1: Yes, if we could destroy evil out there, the world's problems will be solved,
0: and the evil is so flat it's I'm, so non-dimensional like that we don't have to feel bad right. about it at all and I think that that's actually been an interesting aspect of some more recent horror movies mm. like I'm thinking of uh, Midnight Mass last year the television show that was so good that we should just talk about for hours um, because of like how all the religion <laughs> elements to your, it are we gonna <laughs> talk we about out, it folks. for hours? <laughs> just what you Strap wanted in, a, kids. Year, a year later <laughs> <laughs> um, but I just, but part of what I think was interesting about that, that complicated that narrative of evil was that like, it actually kind of humanized the, mm. the bad guy in that show so that you kind of weren't sure like who is bad and who is good. And usually mm-hmm. the horror genre has always made that very clear for us. Mm-hmm.
1: This is one of the reasons that I love The Exorcist, which One of my favorite movies, also legitimately the scariest movie I have ever seen. Like, it is terrifying. The priest who is sent to try to help this girl who is possessed by a demon is somebody who is struggling with his own doubts. And he's struggling with guilt over his relationship with his mom. And he's at one point asking, like, I don't know if I believe any of this. Mm-hmm. And even the end of the movie, not to give too much away, <clears throat> but it's not entirely clear what happens at the end in terms of, was it a demon? Where did it go? Who took care of it? And I really like stories that complicate categories of good and evil instead of treat them as black and white, even though the black and white ones are satisfying as Mm -hmm. well, because we want to take care of evil in the world. But I like the ones that nuance the human condition, as it were.
0: Nuance.
1: Yes, I would say death Mm -hmm. probably ranks at the top of things that, like, people in all times and places have been afraid of. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the things that, like, legit scare us. Not not the fun scary, but, like, I can't fall asleep because my mind is racing about this thing scary. Let's go there. I fear reaching a specific age where I will have lost my mental faculties, but Mm. be alive but really not be able to remember anything or enjoy anything or or also getting to an age where physically I am relegated to a chair yeah and probably to watching Jeopardy for the rest of my life I guess also I'm scared that no
0: one will come visit me I think that's what I'm scared I mean I'm scared of all of those things and then I'm also scared of like wrinkles lots of wrinkles obviously um it's it's one of the more frightening things about being single and childless is, like, who's going to take care of me when I get old? And mm-hmm. what if I get sick? And, mm-hmm. you know, who's going to be there? Because that's a very demanding thing. Right. Elder care takes a lot yes. from someone. Yes.
1: Now we're getting into the deep stuff. This isn't just armchair psychology. This is just, like, things in our brains.
0: We could go golden girls. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we could make a pact. Like,
1: did they make a pact?
0: I don't know. I'm just saying we could.
1: Like, like yes, they joined forces and yeah, did life Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah.
0: We, they did life together, like an intentional community.
1: Oh, well, cult. That's a scary thing. That's the scariest of them all.
0: <laughs> yeah, they can be. <laughs> Especially when, well, uh, when depicted by Hollywood. <laughs> True. But cults is kind of a slippery thing to define, so.
1: Yes, we are going to get into the fascinating, somewhat scary, slippery nature of cults with our guest today.
0: Sam Kestenbaum has spent his journalistic career studying all sorts of people who are drawn to the supernatural.
1: Sam is a religion reporter who has written about vampires, TikTok healers, QAnon devotees, and groups with some definite culty vibes.
2: I'm interested, I think, like a lot of us, in the peculiar, in the things that make us do a double take. And I think that a lot of uh, American religious groups also are into the peculiar and do peculiar things in order to uh, get our attention.
1: A conversation with Sam about cults, what they are, and why so many of us find them fascinating is coming up just after the break.
0: Religion News Service is an independent, award winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. From Wiccans
1: to white nationalism to digital worship, RNS covers it all.
0: And if you like what we're doing at Say by the City, let us know. Throw us a rating or a review. It goes a long way toward helping get the word out about the show.
1: We have a new review. Mm. She says, I have binged SBTC and have finally caught up to the weekly podcasts. As a fellow elder millennial who moved to SoCal from the Bible Belt at 25, Caitlin and Roxy put words to so many of my experiences. Love this podcast.
0: Hey, that warms my stone cold dead bones.
1: You can also email us at sbtcpodcasts at religionnews.com. We want to hear
0: from you. When I was in college, my parents were convinced that I was part of a cult. Oh my gosh. (laughs) They were very concerned. It was really just a young adult college ministry, but
1: (laughs) (laughs) you're like... We're just really intense about things.
0: We were very intense about things. We had small groups that were like the—they always had a male and a female leader, and the male and the female leader were supposed to like sort of model a marriage relationship, um, hmm. but only you know only in like the like like gender norms, you know. But there was like that was like actually part of it, and then like. Mm. And then we, we work together all of the time. But actually, I've gone back. I'm not going to say what this organization was, but I've gone back and like, lo- like looked at their Wikipedia page and there's like, there's so many articles that are basically like, is this a cult? <laughs> and they're like, and then they're like, all these warnings about this particular mm-hmm. group and the ways that they like, mm-hmm. all these accusations of like brainwashing or like grooming, not in like the way that we talk about grooming right now with kids, but like grooming mm-hmm. people for like women for like, a certain kind of marriage and like having kids and homeschooling and all of this stuff. And mm-hmm. I was, and I look back and I'm like, man, I really am <laughs> glad I got out of that quickly. <laughs>
1: yes. Whether or not it met the formal criteria of a cult, you can look back and say, I am no longer in that...
0: And I'm glad. I can see some concerning patterns within that yes. organization that I'm...
1: So this raises an interesting tension that we'll tease out with our guest today. But basically when is it okay to call an organization a cult? Mm. As religion reporters at RNS, I imagine you try to avoid that word.
0: Yeah. I mean, pretty much it is a no-no to use the word Mm. cult to describe a specific group. You know, you could talk about like a movie cult, a fictional Mm. cult, but it's it's definitely a no-no to use it to describe an existing group.
1: Is it a no-no to describe a former group like the Jonestown group? Mm. With I'm just wondering, is there is there question. some point sure. in which we can look back and
0: say the people and look legitimately call it that?
1: Well, there are there are people who study fringe religious movements, and there are telltale signs. Steve Eichel is a psychologist who is also the president of the International Cultic Studies Association.
0: He, so many jobs I didn't know existed until this episode. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes. So Steve Eichel offers six criteria for identifying whether you or someone you love is in a cult. Okay. I'm going to read them. hmm And I want you later if you're willing to reflect on whether (laughs) these criteria matched the young adult group that you were in. Okay. All right. Okay. Number one, he says, beware of any kind of pressure, especially any kind of pressure to make a quick decision about becoming involved in an intense activity.
0: Mm. Mm -hmm.
1: So I guess this would be different from just like an invitation. There would be a real like social... And verbal. Like an altar call? <laughs> well, that's a that's an interesting and tricky point you just made. Next he says, be wary of any leader who proclaims him or herself as having special powers or special insight, and someone who claims to be divine in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. I assume your leaders knew better than to describe themselves as having divine powers.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There wasn't like a claim for divinity, but, but speaking for God, like that was definitely there, you know, like, like that sort of like look up to your authority kind of, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's part of like a lot of Christian hierarchies, I feel like.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree. Oh, no. <laughs> what, are we, what are we discovering? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the third thing Steve Eichel says to be on the lookout for is that the group is closed. There may be outside followers, but there's usually an inner circle that follows the leader without question and maintains mm. a lot of secrecy. Mm. It's like a very strong okay. in-group, out-group dynamic. Mm-hmm. A kind of we obey the leader at all costs and there's like secrecy <laughs> built into that.
0: hmm Okay. The obey the leader at all costs was part of definitely part of the group that I was in. There was a lot of uh accountability and discipline. Um
1: but but wouldn't a lot of Christians just say like, well yeah, that's just part of
0: what we're doing. Yeah, but I mean it was it was, you know, I think it was it was more extreme than I've ever experienced anywhere else. You know, where there mm-hmm. was very much like a sense of like a central authority. Mm-hmm. But not so much the like in-group out-group or like the group was closed. I, that's what it there wasn't like a, there wasn't that sense of like it's closed, you know. Um, mm. so the group next thing to look out for. The group uses
1: deceptive means to recruit new members. And then once they recruit new members, they get them into what's essentially thought reform. Like, Mm. we need to change the way that you think about reality, about what we're doing, about God, spirituality, like the way that you've thought about it in the past was wrong, we are teaching you in this new way of thinking. Right. And it's totalizing.
0: Well, we've talked about that before. Hmm. I mean, this is tricky because I do feel like there was like kind of a like, this is a... Like a rock star, rock concert feel to the college ministry, you know, and so I think that that was like a, an appeal to a lot of college students was like basically like a free mm-hmm. concert.
1: Is it bait and switch? Is it like right, offering, bait and switch? Right, like offering yeah. the free fun thing, but then once you're in, you realize there are all these
0: Strings steps. Is, yeah,
1: to, yeah, yeah. Okay, number five. Cults also exploit their members mostly financially. Within the group, they'll exploit them psychologically and sexually as well. So a kind of using people to get what the leaders want.
0: Mm.
1: Hopefully that wasn't true.
0: I I don't think so. You know, I mean, I think people gave a lot of money, but I, but, you know, that happens in lots of churches.
1: (laughs) Again, again. again. What are are we getting at here? And then finally... (laughs) final criteria that Steve Eichel offers, the idea that if you leave the cult, horrible things will happen. That if you leave, if you decide to go, like, all these bad things will happen as a way of keeping you in. Like, you will go to hell. But do people say that? I guess some
0: people do. Some people do you know, I think we've talked about this before. There is there is this totalizing aspect and there is this sense of, I remember at that time at some of these rock concert-y things, I remember the pastor at one point being like, look around you, 50% of you won't be a Christian by the time you're hit 40 years old. You know, like those, and, and so there were the kind of those scare tactics mm. that made you feel a little bit like you needed to stay, mm-hmm. you know, like, or, or mm-hmm. like we were the true believers and like a lot of the people out there that didn't weren't as intense as us or weren't as like on fire devoted like they were gonna like fall away like chaff
1: there was a kind of future threat of not all of you will make it or not all of you will remain right and doesn't that just leave you with a sense of fear
0: yes yeah
1: like it's not actually an assuring thing. It's like a, it's a fear thing. It's It's a fear
0: thing. And I think it also, what I remember it too, is feeling like I had to prove myself then. And mm -hmm. that wasn't like, it was like partly prove myself to God, but partly prove myself to the leaders at the church, you know, which probably like generated mm -hmm. some of those other things that we talked about of feeling like you had to give a lot of yourself or you had to prove a loyalty and so I think mm-hmm. that that did kind of, it, at least in me, engender a sense of like a little bit of like probably leftover teacher's pet or something of like, I'm not one of those yes. people, you know? And I'm going right. to prove that. Right. So.
1: so, in conclusion, <laughs> maybe your parents were onto something. <laughs> I don't know if they were onto something and calling it a cult, but they were identifying specific dynamics of like authority and submission and control.
0: Yeah, that I think are dangerous. Right, right even spooky. Uh, We needed needed to do that, yeah. (laughs) Yes, we
1: did. Today's guest is Sam Kestenbaum, a freelance religion reporter who has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and many other outlets, including RNS, about fringe and fascinating religious groups.
0: Hey, Sam. Hey, Sam. Hey, guys. What got you into religion reporting, but even more so like reporting on sort of maybe more fringe
2: religious groups? I mean, it's a pretty a pretty simple answer. I'm interested, I think, like a lot of us, in the peculiar, in the things that make us do a double take. And I think that a lot of uh, American religious groups also are into the peculiar and do peculiar things in <laughs> order to uh, get our attention. Mm-hmm. So-
1: you follow what you find peculiar.
2: Yeah, I I follow what I find peculiar, what I find interesting. And I guess what I mean is the groups that I'm attracted to, I, I, I take them seriously at what at what they're doing that is I uh, I I think that they also are doing peculiar things in order to get attention. Um and and mm. I take that sort of work seriously uh, as as a kind of a labor or promotion. Um mm.
0: So you give them the attention
2: they're searching for. <laughs> sometimes, yeah. Some, sometimes that is the case. I mean, I think that's but that's the experience of being a journalist. I think in general mm-hmm. is, is often people do, are doing sort of attention-seeking things, and you find yourself reporting about that. I mean, Caitlin, you must you must have thoughts on on promotion and and, and people you know seeking uh, attention and, <laughs> and what that feels like to give it to them. But I guess that's what I mean is like when I say peculiar, I, I don't think that I'm sort of casting judgment upon them as mm-hmm. weird in in. In contrast to that, which is normal, that is, if I see somebody doing something that is, I think, very creative or generative, I, I think that to be like to be an art, you know. For example, I mean, there are numerous groups I could I could mention here that you know that I've written about or I've encountered in in public spaces or online doing things that strike me as uh, really creative.
1: So, as a religion journalist. One thing we appreciate about your work, Sam, is that you do a really good job writing about various groups with nuance and respect to groups that um, some of the people in my hometown might have definitely seen as fringe, weird, (laughs) bad. When we're talking about cults, though, the word cult is always pejorative because no one says they're in a cult. No one believes they're in a cult. So how do you report on groups that others would say are cults or have cultish elements in a way that's still respectful? And do you use the term cult to describe those groups?
2: Yeah, I think you're you're right that the term is generally a no-no in the the field of uh, Mm -hmm. religion reporting. Religion News Association this year, one of the panels run by... You know, colleagues of ours, the title of it was Don't Call It a Cult, and it featured um, members of the Hare Krishna group, um, an ex-Hasidic Jew, and someone from the uh, a FLDS member.
0: Mm. That was a great panel.
2: Yeah. And it, I thought that was a productive conversation. And you know, that title, which was drawn from um, the book about Nixium, I think it sort of in reference to that book, which came out relatively recently with the same title. Mm-hmm. It summed up the general, you know, line about, about cults so that is basically to avoid that, that word at all. And in its place, at least in the, the academy, in the, how scholars talk about these groups, they often replace it with, with another term. Uh, new religious movements is often how they sort of sub that out I don't think that really gets us away from the question of what to do about unusual religion or the outray in American religion, exactly, mm-hmm. because we're often using another term to describe a similar group of people that that uh, that people might also still think about as uh, doing religion badly mm-hmm. in, in not mm-hmm. in not so the normative way. In, in setting this question up, you said cult is always a pejorative. And I, and I think it generally is, but there's this whole other use of cult that we talk about in terms of mm-hmm. cult movies, Quentin Tarantino movies, or mm. cult followings, or the uh, you know cult devotion to something, something with a cult, you know, these shoes have a cult following, or, you know, Birkenstocks have a cult following, or Grateful Dead have a cult following. There are these other sort of more playful uses of it that mm-hmm. um, I, I think are just always worth thinking about because I think it's a complicated term that said no i generally don't call a group a cult in my own authorial voice I, I, and that's also because i think there are probably way more descriptive ways to talk about something mm-hmm. um, and you know i'd rather you know you can you can describe what clothing looks like or what music people are listening to or how they are moving during a, a, a service. Um, there, there are ways, to, always sort of more descriptive ways to talk about a group. And um, in, in if a term is like way overladen, then it can actually do a disservice to the kind of descriptive work that I want to do. Um, but but I but I do think it's a comp, it's a mm-hmm. it's a more complex term. And you know I've had I've had people I've written about, for example, this. I was writing about a um, a fang making vampire guru. Uh, who's part of this kind of Call larping? Yeah, I think he's
1: in New York. <laughs> he is I'm in thinking New York. About. Yeah, he's,
2: yeah, so we you can, can befriend pro- you, him. You, yeah, you probably. If, if he's still in the same location, I'll share the address. You guys can go get fangs made. Um, I I would really like some fangs.
0: So okay.
2: <laughs> so, so so he so he makes these fangs out of a little storefront, and he has a group of. Like a vampire gang or family of vampires who dress up like vampires, conduct ceremonies. So it's a mix of kind of LARPing, dress up, and
0: mm-hmm.
2: alt spirituality.
1: Do they drink blood?
2: So this is a point of uh, debate within the community. Like, like everything, there's sort of doctrinal schisms um, <laughs> uh, about whether <laughs> about whether blood should be, you know, actual blood should be drank or whether. It can be sort of be ceremoniously done in a way that's, you're not really drinking blood. So there was some debate about this. Um, this sounds weirdly familiar to me.
0: <laughs> yeah. Is it real blood? Yeah. Is it, you know, just like symbolic blood?
2: Yeah. Well, you know, we're all the same at heart, you know. Um, <laughs> but, Caitlin, why do you know so much about this?
1: Because I was reading Sam's story about it oh, in preparation oh. for this interview and I was. Got it. I, right. I was fascinated by. This man who's like kind of cool. He's like cool looking and kind of hipsterish looking in his 40s. And also he is a professed leader of a vampiric group.
2: Yeah. Yep. Yeah.
0: So you're team vampire over team werewolf.
1: Is this a Twilight reference? I don't
0: know. I (laughs) I think they fight in more than just Twilight, right? It's not the only Um, time vampires and werewolves are faced off.
1: Yeah, I think vampires on the whole have more like... You mentioned LARPing, Sam. They they have a more like costume fun. Yeah.
2: Right. Anne Rice didn't do a werewolf movie. Right. Mm-hmm. They are not as vaunted a or less romantic a figure it would seem.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm.
2: So yes. if you were to say you're team vampire, I would sort of understand, but um <laughs> uh and all this sort of stuff is like, I think, appealing to the people who get involved in at least that sort of vampire, vampiric mm-hmm. group is that they are, they're, they're reading Anne Rice, they're watching Twilight, they're, they are consuming mm-hmm. all the same things we're consuming about these um, stories. And in that case, they're, they're going further in their, in their interest, I would say, uh, in going from a sort of casual fandom to something a little more, and getting fangs made and dressing up like vampires. And the, the leader of this group, his name is Father Sebastian. That's what he goes by. His his real name is Todd. And he, um, he and, and so, so I'm sitting there in the, in the back room with him and he's fitting fangs on people. He's putting them on and they say a little like mantra or they recite something after they've been fitted with fangs, expressing their devotion to the vampire life to him. And so he would, this would all be kind of done with a wink. He might say, well, yeah, you know, I'm. You know my. You know, so people ask me if I'm a cult leader, and I say, yeah. Or you know, this is like a cult. Mm. I'm creating culture. It's like a cult. Um, mm, so he would <laughs> play with these things in in a way that, to me, I think was perceptive of mm-hmm. the sort of push pull, the scary factor, the allure of the cult in in our like popular imagination. Mm-hmm. So I give him credit, and I similarly see that kind of fluency with with the term with the negative and the positive of the term in some of these groups that might be playing with that.
1: Yeah. There's
0: like a self-awareness.
2: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. So speaking of drinking blood, eating flesh, wearing elaborate costumes, there is an old joke that religion is just a cult plus time. So is this true as Christians are Caitlin and I just part of like a late to like a really old cult?
1: Not the oldest, but, you know.
0: But with some pretty peculiar customs, really.
1: Right. And early Christians were kind of derided as these very strange people who got together and uh, allegedly, you know, drank blood.
2: (laughs) What do you think? Are you guys part of a cult? (laughs) (laughs) I I leave that one to you. That was a perfect
1: journalist's turn. (laughs) Um. So, my, my thinking goes to contemporary. Well, we we're not going to answer. <laughs> <Okay>.
0: Oh, <laughs> no, I really, I mean, certain iterations of, of today's Christianity. Um, anyway,
1: I mean, I think this gets us to, from a sociological perspective, how our cults defined? My understanding is that they typically revolve around like a charismatic, uh, authoritarian male who is seen as godlike. Sounds familiar. <laughs> uh, it's very strong, like, in-group and out-group. You don't, you're not supposed to have a lot of contact with outside groups. So I can look at these elements of the sociological definition of a cult and say there's overlap. But, of course, I also want to say, in my experience, Christianity has not been uniformly about mind control in the way that a kind of traditional understanding of cults might <laughs> suggest again. No one thinks they're in a cult. I do not think that we are in a cult. Whew. <laughs>
2: <laughs> do you do? Uh, do you do like Soul Cycle, or uh, do you belong to any gyms, or do any uh, sort of devotional athletics?
0: I personally do
2: not. I mean,
1: I'll go to a spin class, but I hate it. And I hate the instructor, and I don't want to Do they dim
2: the lights and spin, or is that... Yes. They do, okay. Well, if they're dimming lights, that's religion, right? If the lights are dimmed, then... uh, That's the
1: marker? Well, some of the language that they use (laughs) is like you know, release your inner spirit and find your purpose and we're all in this yeah. together. And I'm not, I don't, I'm like, I think this is relatively benign. Like, I, I'm not going to sign my life over to this right.
2: gym I mean, instructor. I mean, yeah, but, I mean, even those like, I mean, the these criteria might fit a lot of other things such as um, – you know, for example, military fraternity, a lot of other groups that basically socialize us in, or socialize people in, restrictive ways. So mm-hmm. it it uh it, it just becomes tricky uh, in terms of like mm-hmm. r- real pat definitions of, of of how do we determine whether something checks you know this many boxes? They are then put in the in the, in the cult corner. Um, mm-hmm. It varies, and and that might not be totally universally applicable.
0: Mm-hmm. I was thinking as you were speaking like we're in a bit of a weird moment where like you've got QAnon, you've got like Mm -hmm. a new satanic panic kind of happening, you've got like anti-vaxxer stuff, Uh all these kind of conspiracies that are interwoven and all of that. Like, are we at a, you know, again, we're sort of tiptoeing around, like, are those cults or not cults, but they're all sort of like, like feeding on something. Do you think we're in a moment that people are like more susceptible to these kinds of conspiratorial cult-like groups? Yeah.
2: I mean, you know, QAnon is is one of these really interesting ones to me um, Mm -hmm. for for a number of reasons. And, you know, in part, because I think it really It is both an inheritor of the satanic panic, um, concern about cabals of groups that prey upon children in our midst, not exactly QAnon, but I recently did a a bunch of reporting on this Reawaken America tour, which is headlined by Michael Flynn and has Mm -hmm. all sorts of characters from the MAGA world. And QAnon is in the groundwater at these, at these events.
0: And they include a ton of rituals and stuff.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, I mean they are religious events. I mean they're, they're often spoken about as as Christian yeah. nationalist events and and mm-hmm. uh, spiritual warfare. And it's a very the tours they're they're moving through Pentecostal churches and and charismatic prophets are on stage and so forth. But you know in the state in the, in the crowd there people will have QAnon t shirts and will have read a lot of QAnon literature or watched QAnon prophets and and QAnon stuff is, is teased at from the stage. So they're not full on QAnon mm-hmm. events, but they're QAnon ish and. The reason I bring this up is QAnon is sometimes spoken about as as, as a as a cult, as something that has
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, taken, you know, torn apart families, um, pulled people into a, a, a world view in which they are alienated from their friends and family and doing different things in their lives and so forth. So there is a concern about. QAnon being a cult. At the same time, that one of the principal concerns, one of the main concerns of QAnon, is that there is a cult (laughs) at play. So you know, so there's just layers of cult concern around this group. Um, Mm -hmm. Both they're concerned about cabals and cults that are undoing the American family. That are that the tendrils are coming into their their lives. And um, if we tune into Rachel Maddow or liberal mainstream media, then there's a lot of concern about about QAnon being uh, a this wild-eyed, uh, r- religious, cultish uh, force in in American life. So it's a sort of a double thing going on.
1: Okay, so sometime early on in the pandemic, I had various coping mechanisms, as we all did. And one of the things that I did in that time was watch a lot of cult-related documentaries, exposés. I think, you know, the best is going clear, which is on Scientology, based on the book by Lawrence Wright. The second best, I really got into the vow on the Nexium cult in Albany. Fascinating layers there. I have my own theories about why we're Drawn to shows about cults and you know, media consumption about cults, but I would love to hear your theory on why we kind of find cults morbidly fascinating.
2: I, I guess this might be a little meta, but to think about the peg here, you know, when you guys emailed me, you know, this as I understand it is also linked to the month that we are in, which is which is Halloween, which is a, a time that um, the supernatural is mm-hmm. is v- visited. Uh, or explored in in various outlets. You know, I've that vampire piece we mentioned was pegged to to Halloween. That came out. The, it's a pretty obvious peg. But sure. there have been other stories that are less, you know, clearly Halloween, but deal with sort of the spirit realm that I've written mm-hmm. that have also conveniently slotted into a Halloween weekend. And as a professional, I of course am game for however things get plotted out. But it is interesting when what time of the year we we look at it a kind of a religion <laughs> when as you guys were reflecting there's lots of blood drinking in um in uh, in some some forms uh, other other forms of more more would be mainstream religion it was recently through salt lake city and there is a a group there called um summum that is founded in the 70s there's a they operate out of a large pyramid in salt lake city and they practice mummification and the founder was in touch with supernatural beings who instructed him in kind of ancient egyptology so they're they're up to some stuff Mm -hmm. when you go to their their website to contact them they have a form for you know aspiring journalists who want to write about them and Mm -hmm. like you have to sign this document in order to hear back from them which um one of their stipulations is this story that you produce under no circumstances can be aired or published in the month of October.
1: <laughs> huh.
2: And wow. what I That's smart. Right. They are both savvy enough to, to to media queries go right here. And yes, we're game. Come. We'll like give you a tour. Well, you can look at our mum- mummies. We can we can do this with you. So they're they're both savvy about their appeal and they recognize what it is, but they don't want any more Halloween stories. You, do, you know, do it, do it after Thanksgiving. Do it, uh, you know, do it Christmas. Mm-hmm. Uh, just not, not Halloween. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, but it's...
1: <laughs> I was going to say, what everybody's <laughs> thinking about around Christmas time, mummification.
0: I love a Christmas mummy. <laughs> what do you think it is okay. that makes
2: cults scary to people? Probably has something to do with agency, with the loss of agency. Uh, feeling out of control, mm-hmm.
0: uh, yeah.
2: Which I, th- which I think it is one of those things that's both exciting and terrifying at the same time. Uh, but that's, I, I think that's mm-hmm. the 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 the, you know, the loss of control. I think is probably the the scary thing about 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 that. You know, I'm trying to think of do people dress up like cult leaders for for Halloween?
1: Hmm. I bet there's been some Keith Rainiers. In the last couple years, you think so? Yeah, because it's such a distinct. It's you know his like mm. ponytail and the little like headband he wears.
2: <laughs> yeah. What do you guys? Yes, what, 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 what do you think is is uh, scary about about cults?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's it. I think it's the the lack of agency and and when it gets spun out to an extreme, like you lost control mm-hmm. so much that you did something truly horrific. You know, like. A murder or suicide or, you know, these crazy, terrible rituals with children or whatever, you know, these things that you could never imagine doing in real life. But oh my gosh, Mm -hmm. these people like somehow got hypnotized or duped into doing these things. You know, I think they get used a lot as a genre to try to get a handle on why why people do terrible things. Like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. how did the Nazis rise? You know, like how did mm-hmm. these how how do groups do horrific things? I think they often get used as a sort of genre to explain like right. how people right. become part of a crowd.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think they're scary because I think in many of these cases, like the Nixeum case, the people seemed like Normal, rational, even successful, intelligent people who were nonetheless brought into something really they would later reflect on was really destructive for them. Right. So the scary thing is, of course, could I be led astray in the same way that they were? And maybe I'm watching this to kind of learn... here are the telltale signs of when you Mm -hmm. are being asked to give up agency Mm -hmm. and control in a way that is unhealthy. And also, here's the psychology of these charismatic male leaders who get people to follow them. And on that point, I would say this is where conversations inside the Christian world are, oh, that church is like a cult because their leader demands utmost obedience, people who who ask questions are shunned Mm -hmm. or asked to leave or made to pay in some way. So I guess it's scary because it doesn't feel that far away.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, this, this, the idea that in consuming cult podcasts and cult docu-series and uh, part of it is like news you can use or a cautionary tale about, what happens when something goes too far that, you know, that's interesting to me. I think that's right.
1: Thank you for joining us for one of the more curious conversations we've had on Save by the City. And we can tell you're a journalist and you asked very good questions in response to our questions. (laughs)
0: Counter
2: questions. (laughs) That's mean. Sorry, guys.
0: We're not used to that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it.
2: All right. Thanks, guys.
0: Say by the City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward, and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Elizabeth Joy Wyndham. Chaz Russo put together our look, and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music.
1: We are Roxy Stone and Caitlin Beatty. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening. Don't call me Caitlin Booty.
0: All along, I thought you got your own joke.